You ever wonder about what it will be like on your last day and all the things you failed to accomplish in your life? Sorry to start with a depressing subject. There's a French singer and songwriter named Christine the Queens. That was her name. I think she just goes by Chris now. But she said this about unfinished business. I used to not believe in ghosts, and then I moved in a new house where I constantly hear things and feel cold stuff on my neck. I'm starting to wonder if someone here has unfinished business. So I'm speaking loud so it can actually hear me and manifest itself. That would be awesome because that would mean that death is not the end, which is something I would love to know. I'm terrified of dying because of everything being too unfinished. Now, first of all, I'll say for you kids, there are no such things as ghosts, so we can put that to rest. That's a common kind of belief that they have, there are people who have unfinished business. But notice what she said. There's this hope that death is not the end. There's a hope in that quote, it seems, that there's something to go beyond the grave. And then that piercing quote, she's terrified of dying because of everything being too unfinished. And really, I think a lot of people share this terror of dying, this fear of dying with unfinished business. And I would even venture to guess that even if it doesn't register right on, on, the, on par with terror, that there's some sense in which you feel this, this pressure as well. A relationship to be mended, debts to be paid, achievements that you haven't accomplished yet, experiences not yet had, seeing your grandchildren grow up and married, things that you want to be a part of, but death will steal from you. And how will you face death with all this unfinished business? Or we could ask, how will you live in such a way to finish everything you want to finish? Well, in this passage, Jesus dies accomplishing all that he intended to during his earthly life. Everything on his bucket list was checked off. He fulfilled his mission and he left no unfinished business. There was no fear in his eyes as he died and said, it is finished. And surprisingly, this event, which took place 2,000 years ago, has implications for how we go about the business of our lives and how we even face death. In this passage, Jesus, the good shepherd, having lived his life to the fullest, lays down his life for the sheep. And the death of Jesus is at the heart of our faith and our salvation and our forgiveness. And that is what enables us then to live and die with joy and freedom instead of fear of death or not accomplishing all that we wish we could have. Now I want you to notice something about John's account of the crucifixion. Notice, for one thing, that it doesn't seem to be what our modern culture obsessed with images would like to be thinking about concerning the, Jesus of, uh, the death of Jesus. 
So there have been movies that have come out, and what do they focus on? They focus on the brutality, the suffering, showing every single detail of what Jesus must have gone through. And yet John doesn't do that. He gives some details about the crucifixion, but he doesn't go into detail about the brutality and the suffering. He could have done that with words, even though he didn't have pictures or video, and yet he doesn't. Rather, John's account of the crucifixion focuses on Jesus' identity and on his obedience to fulfilling the Father's plan. You'll also notice as you look at different accounts in the Gospels of the crucifixion, how John's account differs in several ways than those in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And while it can be a helpful exercise in pulling all the Gospels together to try to harmonize and make sense of what actually took place in what order, I think there's a lot of value in just taking John for what he he gives us. What, what, What are John's intentions as he is writing this account? What are John's intentions as he's writing this account of the crucifixion? And so I want to consider some focuses that John has in this particular account of Jesus' crucifixion. Three focuses of John's narration of the crucifixion of Christ. We'll notice at the beginning of our passage, we see a few details. Jesus bearing his own cross, going to the place of the skull. He's crucified with one on either side of him. He gives us sparse details, though, about what's going on there. But what does he focus on in the first part of our passage? The inscription that Pilate had written, which was put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, King of the Jews. And notice in particular, John says it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The Jews make a big fuss about it. Don't say that he is the king of the Jews. Just say that he made his claim to be a king, not that he actually was a king. And yet Pilate kind of gives his last jab. Now he's acting tough, even though he was, he was given way to the Jews, Jewish leaders in other ways. Now he says, what I've written, I've written. It's going to stay that way. And he is unwittingly proclaiming the kingship of Jesus. You remember throughout our last two passages at the end of John 18 and then the beginning of John 19, we had this theme of the kingship of Jesus. He is the king and now he is proclaimed as king on the writing above his head as he died on the cross. See, his enthronement was not on sitting on a judgment seat as Pilate did when he pronounced the sentence upon Jesus. His enthronement is being lifted up on a cross with this particular announcement, with a multilingual announcement, with, we could call it an international pronouncement that Jesus Christ is King. Often we can tend to think everything is about ourselves or we could we could be closed-minded in understanding our faith as Christians we could think it's an american faith mainly that there aren't many others outside who have it right or we could even think in terms of our tradition we have the right ideas about what it means to follow christ and to do church i think about that in terms 
similar terms to I think about the Super Bowl today. And I'm breaking my rule in even mentioning the Super Bowl because this is about Christ. But it serves as a good illustration. The Super Bowl is a huge holiday in America, right? It's a, I went to Walmart yesterday and it was like Christmas. I was like, what is happening here? And I thought, oh, it must be the Super Bowl. But did you know the viewership worldwide of the Super Bowl is much, is, it's almost minuscule compared to, say, the World Cup. 500, 600 million viewers across the globe. And last year, the Super Bowl was under 100 million. We tend to think that it's all about us when really there's a whole world outside of us that we haven't even considered. And we can even do that with our understanding of Christianity. And here he is proclaimed to be the international king of all the world. You look at Christians' population worldwide, and we will see we are only a small part of the body of Christ throughout the world. Jesus is the king over all. And that is proclaimed here symbolically. I think John wants us to see this international proclamation of Jesus as king. As he is being lifted up from John 7.32. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. All kinds of people. People from all tongues and tribes and people and nations. And this has implications for our understanding first of the kingdom. But it also has implications for our own proclamation to the truth of Jesus as king has implications for our evangelism implications for missionaries in our support of missions we think of the Purdue's who we support in Southeast Asia they are doing this ongoing proclamation of Jesus as the king over all the world and it's our hope it's my hope that we would send out missionaries from our church wouldn't that be an amazing Blessing to be a part of this international mission of God proclaiming Jesus as king. We also consider the implications of this kingship of Jesus being enthroned on a cross and, and what that means for us as citizens of this kingdom. This, this is your king, brothers and sisters, who was crucified, who was lifted up on a cross. We have a different kind of king with a different kind of kingman, a different kind of enthronement. One not of grand majesty, but one of humble suffering and death on the cross. Well, this has implications for how we live our lives as citizens of this kingdom, of how we submit to this king. It is a life marked not by demanding our rights necessarily, but a life marked with humbling ourselves before our brothers and sisters in our relationships. Not, not coming to church and demanding that our rights be met, but considering how can I lay my life down for others like Christ laid his life down for me. Well, consider your own relationships. What, what is your tendency in your relationships? Is it to try to get others to serve your needs? You can think about your work relationships. Is it to try to get others to serve your needs and your wants, your desires? could think, think about your marriage relationships or relationships with your roommates 
or relationships with your neighbors? Is it all about how can I get them to serve and meet my needs? Or am I seeking to follow the example of my Savior in laying down my life for the sake of others? We see that John really highlights this particular kingship of Jesus, an international king who has a different kind of kingdom. But notice also in verses 23 and 24, but also 28, that John has a particular focus on the fulfillment of the scriptures in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now we see this seamless tunic woven from top to bottom that the guards are are trying to get. They don't want to tear it because it's a valuable item. And various symbolisms have been suggested for this seamless tunic. Some have said, well, this represents the unity of the church. But then you're like, well, then they just, they stole it. So what does that mean for the unity of the church? Others see it as kind of a priestly garment. Uh, Not only is Jesus a king, he's also a priest. Um, And as much as I wanted that one to be there, I just didn't find warrant for it in the, the text itself. John's focus, though, as far as I can tell in this passage, isn't with the symbolism, but on the fulfillment of Scripture. He he goes to great lengths to show the things that took place which fulfilled the Old Testament Scriptures. The details, in other words, of this garment and Jesus' garment are given to show why why they cast lots for his garments, thus fulfilling the Scriptures. You can turn back in your Bible to Psalm 22, verse 18, and we see where this is being pulled from. Psalm 22 and verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Of course, Psalm 22, used by other evangelists in the Gospels, to speak of Christ as this this Davidic king who suffered. Then there's also Jesus' words in 28, which John points to as a fulfillment of Scripture. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Now again, the focus is on the fulfillment of Scripture in the suffering and death of Jesus. In the previous case, you notice the soldiers unwittingly fulfilled the Scripture through God's providence. But here it seems Jesus is consciously fulfilling, intentionally fulfilling Scripture by calling out, I thirst. It's not that he wasn't thirsty. He wasn't lying by saying, I thirst. And yet the way John puts it, he says that he says this to fulfill Scripture. He was thirsty, but even as he felt his throat parched and said, I thirst, he was fully aware of his own identity as Messiah, as the Messiah promised from the Old Testament Scriptures. Various places have been used as, uh, to, to point back to this passage. Psalm uh, 69, 21, even Uh, Psalm 22 in some places, some say these fit what John is referring to. But even then, I don't think it's necessarily important for us to identify where he's fulfilling the scripture from, I thirst. It's important to see that 
John is emphasizing that the death of Jesus Christ, all these events, the crucifixion of Christ, is pointing to their fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah. See, they, the readers of this gospel, others who saw this account might be tempted to think that the death of this one who claimed to be the Messiah, who was proclaimed to be the king, proved that he wasn't the Messiah and Davidic king because he's dying on a cross. What kind of a, a king and Messiah dies on a cross? Right? David's offspring, the promise to David was, your offspring is going to th- sit on the throne forever. You will have an everlasting kingdom. So how does that fit with this man who claims to be the offspring of David, claims to be the Messiah, and is suffering a brutal death on the cross? Well, John's appeal to the Old Testament scriptures show that in Jesus' suffering and death and all the circumstances around it, he actually is proving himself to be the one that's been promised from of old. Because the Jews had it all wrong considering who they thought this Messiah would be. This is the suffering servant. This is the Messiah who doesn't reign by raising up an army to overcome the Romans. This is the Messiah who has raised up himself and suffers and dies and thirsts and calls out. He is the suffering king and Messiah. And this has implications one uh, implications one about how we read scripture we tend to make everything about ourselves it's just a a natural human tendency i think to make things about ourselves you've been in conversations i'm sure where somebody's telling a story and you had an impulse to share your story because you heard what they had to say and you have a story that's better than their story and surely they want to hear your story because you want, you want to get your story out there. You want them to hear about you. Or if you haven't actually interrupted and dominated a conversation, you at least felt the urge to do that. And we all have that tendency to make things about ourselves. And we do that with Scripture as well. Often when we read Scripture, we can insert ourselves as the main character and think first and foremost, okay, how is that about me? How does this apply to me? I want to know how it applies to me, 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 me. And yet here, John is pointing to the Old Testament scripture and saying this is about Christ. This is about Jesus. We could even read much of the Old Testament and think of it in just a moralistic way. We could think about how does this teach me how to live? How does this teach me what is good and what is bad? Or some have used the acronym for Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. But this, from first to last, from Genesis to Revelation, the word of God, the Bible, is about Jesus. It is speaking of him. Throughout the book of John, he has said that. that. He tells tells the Jewish leaders, you you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But it is they which speak of me. They found their hope in Moses. And yet Jesus even pointed to Moses and said, Moses, he was speaking of me. Everything from first to last in the scripture is pointing to Jesus Christ. So let us be careful in making things in the Bible first and primarily about us and how it applies to us and how we should live. Now those things come later, but first comes Christ. I wonder... 
we, we all struggle at times with our, our daily habits of reading the Scripture, uh, of spending adequate time reading the Word and, and being filled with the Word. And I wonder sometimes if it's because that, if it's because we make it all about ourselves. We make it about things other than Christ, and therefore we're, we're, we're slower, we're lazy to go to the Word. But once we realize this is about our Savior, this is about Christ, this is about Jesus, not that you'll find the name Jesus in every verse or uh, a reference to Christ in every verse, and yet when you come to understand and delight in who Jesus is and then you, you remember the Word of God is about Jesus, it, it will give new life to your going to the Word. Delight in Christ and you will delight in His Word has implications for how we read the Bible, expectations of what we will find, has implications for how we will read the Psalms, as John quotes specifically from Psalms about Jesus Christ, the Old Testament. All of this word is about our Savior, Jesus. Notice the third aspect that John focuses on in verses 25 through 30, and it is Jesus' completion of his earthly mission. He doesn't focus on the details of gore and suffering of Jesus. He focuses on the meanings of Jesus's on the meaning of Jesus's suffering and death. Notice in verse 28 the scripture says after this Jesus knowing that it was all now finished then he said this. But notice verse four, uh, 28 is referring back to the event with Mary and another woman and the other two Marys. And it seems like this verse 28 is referring back to Jesus' words to Mary, his mother, and the beloved disciple. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now just like there are many symbolic interpretations of the seamless tunic, there have been many interpretations of this. Some speaking of Mary being the mother of the church in a sense. Uh, Some highlighting Mary's role in, in this Uh, aspect of bringing John into her home. You'll notice, though, that John brings her into his home. But I do think there's something, I do think John is attempting to say something symbolic with this passage. And the reason is that the only times that Mary is mentioned in the book of John are here and in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Remember, that is the episode of the wedding at Cana, where Mary tries to intervene and to get Jesus to do something about the, the wedding feast. And you'll remember that story was all about joy in the new covenant of Christ, the joy that Christ brings to in this new covenant. In that case, he, Mary was involved. He called her woman, just as he does here. And the hour was also of central concern. Jesus said, it's, it's not my hour yet. And here we are in the very hour 
that Jesus has been waiting for, hour of his suffering and death, and you have Mary here again. He calls her woman once again. And yet it has more to do with relationships and community. So if I were to venture a guess, I think what John is intending here is the community of the new covenant. It's no longer made of people of just biological links to one another. This new community is composed of those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who remain close to the cross of Jesus Christ. There is a new community. And he established this new community in this command to Mary and this command to, to the beloved disciple. And now, in light of that, now everything has been accomplished. Everything is finished. He says, I thirst. And they offer sour wine to him on a hyssop branch. It's also interesting that John speaks of a hyssop branch. Why did he have to let us know that that's what it was? Well, in light of the context that this is actually taking place during Passover, it's interesting to look back at Exodus 12, 22, and to see it's with the hyssop branch that they spread the blood around the doorposts in order for uh, the angel of death to pass over God's people and to spare them. Jesus is suffering. When he had received the sour wine, verse 30, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. This speaks to the victory of Jesus accomplishing perfectly all the work that his father had for him. No unfinished business here. It is finished. He has done it. And he gave up his spirit. Remember, his mission was to be lifted up and to draw all people to himself. His mission was to, of all the people that his father had given him, to keep none of them and that none of them would be lost. His mission was to save those sheep who were given to him, that they would never be snatched out of his hand. And by his death, he accomplishes that perfectly and completely. It is finished. He has done it. He has rescued his sheep from all of their sins. If you are one of his sheep, it is finished. And because Jesus finished his mission... It is now finished for his people. You have been forgiven in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. No ifs, ands, or maybes. You are forgiven completely, fully, and freely in Christ. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you will go on to commit, this is the good news of the gospel. That is finished because Jesus died for you. You have been reconciled to God. There is no longer any need for you to accomplish anything in order to be reconciled with God because on the cross, Jesus declares it is finished. You've been rescued. You've been justified. You have been declared righteous in His sight by the work of Christ, and it is finished. And therefore, because Jesus finished His mission, you can live without fear of not accomplishing all that you intend to accomplish, of all that you wish you would have accomplished. 
You have peace with God. You have righteousness from God. You have freedom to find worth not in what you do or in what you accomplish, but in belonging to Christ. And then you also have freedom to die without fear because Jesus declared it is finished for you. You don't have to fear facing death with unfinished business. There's nothing more needed for you to be accepted by God, to be forgiven, to be loved by God. Place your faith in Jesus who has accomplished it all for you and rest in him. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who accomplished perfectly all that you had intended for him to fulfill his mission for the salvation of his people and for your glory. And we ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit within us and by your grace to walk in light of this new kingdom, to live as citizens of this kingdom, this king with a different sort of kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.